Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Buongiorno, this is the Unsackable Football Podcast and I'm your host Manuel Fede. I Yeah, I'm I'm excited. I just saw Italy play against Northern Ireland and it was, I don't know, it was exciting if you're a Northern Ireland fan or a fan of Switzerland and uh, maybe if you are from a country like myself that who gets regularly beaten by Italy at a World Cup or European championship knockout stage match so yeah buongiorno here from the unsackable football podcast from a very excited host um i, I think that the other three in this show will have to rein me in a little bit today and um adrian I, i'm gonna introduce you first here adrian sosa as always joining the show um you're not too excited yourself with what's going on this week no, I'll, I'll be the wet blanket of the show to start things off here because obviously Portugal will be joining Italy in the playoffs, the revamped playoffs that we will get into. They're very confusing now. They've gone ahead and made it extra confusing for us even as if we needed more change yearly when it comes to rules or setup of tournaments, etc. But yeah, I, uh, a very disappointing performance from Portugal, which is sort of what we're used to under Fernando Santos lately. But uh, hey, at least Canada did well. Yeah, exactly. At least... You guys have Canada. My country qualified first uh, for the World Cup. I just want to throw that out there after a very disappointing time with Joachim Löw. We actually went to the World Cup first. Um, yeah, even before Brazil, Filippo. Um, but before I bring in Filippo, Josh, I want to bring you in because at least we got Canada, eh? Yeah, yeah, man. It, they're looking uh, well underway after that uh, questionable pitch that they played on but uh didn't seem to bother the boys too much they picked up three massive points and then if they can do it again against mexico i'm gonna say they have one foot in qatar 2022 well and i know someone who was double excited probably just as excited as i am because his original country brazil and his new country us or is it the other way around filippo you can come you can of course correct me either way but looks like both your countries are also going to the world cup i'm i'm doing pretty good and it's hard to say, right? Because I, I was, as a little kid, four-year-old, I was in the U.S. Then I went back to Brazil. And then as a teenager, I came back. I'm just at this point, I lived more in the U.S. in my life. So I don't know what's my new country. But about you were saying about Germany qualifying Brazil, it's not for Brazil's lack of trying, right? Because Brazil has 11 wins in 12 games. They qualified as earlier as they could, earliest as they could in common ball. I'm doing good. Brazil qualified to the World Cup and the United States are on track right now. Yeah, you know, like those are the two biggest World Cup countries. I think when you look at, when you take the World Cup as a table, 
as a league table rather than um, you know the knockouts and the tournaments. Even in tournaments, four and five World Cups won each. No surprise that Brazil and Germany are there first, and then everyone else. You know, it's just an afterthought. That's my take, anyways. You guys can all hate me now. Um, yeah, but Philip, I'm going to stay with you because we have some Brazilian news to kick this show off, and we're going to talk about the World Cup qualifying campaign in a moment. So stay with me. Um, but Dani Alves joins Barcelona. I'm I, I saw this news and I was like, huh? Is it 2012 again? Like, what are we doing? <laughs> Seems like a very odd transfer. What did you make of this whole thing? Yeah, first it speaks of the current situation in Barcelona, right? Because when he left Barcelona, it was technically because he wasn't good enough for their level at that point, sort of, right? And then I believe he went to Juventus at the time. And when Dani came back to Brazil to play for São Paulo, it was pretty much set as a retirement club, right? He would play for Sao Paulo a couple of years and then retire after that. But essentially what happened in Sao Paulo was he was playing as a midfielder, right? I, they played him a lot as a 10. It was kind of weird. And it seemed like he was done to retire. But essentially what happened is out of nowhere, he goes back to Barcelona and apparently he's their hero now. And that that speaks more of Barcelona than Dani Alves himself. And he won the Olympics for Brazil this year. So let's give him credit for that. Yeah, I, I find this odd. Um, I feel like Barcelona's grasping for all sorts of straws here, right, Josh? I mean, the club in so much trouble and bringing in back a guy like that. What did you make of the whole thing? There's there's two things to think about. There, I mean, there's one, are you bringing him back to play? Because if you're bringing him back to play over Serginho Des, that tells me a lot about Serginho Des, and it also tells me a lot about the place of of Barcelona, if Danny Alves can come in and play right away. Now, if you're bringing him in because he he knows the club very well and he's, I mean, I've seen interviews with him before and he was such a personality to have in the the locker room that it, I do believe if you bring him in for probably pennies on the dollar because he's not gonna he's not gonna re- require a lot of money, but he's gonna come in and, and he's someone who's been there, done that, and done just what everything. He loves Barcelona, so hopefully he'll come in and be able to just do an example on a very young uh, Barcelona side even help and teach Sergio Des. And I mean, he did, did play in the Olympics. He did play for Sao Paulo. Like he's still relatively fit. And if he can get training and get back for January, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him play a few games, but I think more of the personality is the reason he's coming back. Yeah. Just to add to what Josh said as well about Sergio Dest, uh, I don't think he'll start, but I think it'll be important for him to help develop Dest as well. I think that'll be the perfect mentor. And I think Dest will still be the starter for Barcelona with Dani picking up minutes here and there. And I find it unlikely as well that Barcelona would play him in the midfield like Bar- like São Paulo did, at least. Yeah, Adrian, what are your thoughts on this? Because um, I'm not sold. Josh and Filippo make a pretty compelling case. But what do you think? Um, is going on here for me it's the visual I think that's my biggest problem with the entire bringing back uh, Dani Alves yeah I think that you know the optics of it are certainly strange a a guy who hasn't really been employed for the last little bit at least 38 years old now of course Zlatan is sort of changing how these aging players are viewed in some ways and I believe that Dani Alves takes pretty good care of himself so he might still have something to offer on the pitch my big question is if he does play, where is it going to be? Is it going to be at right back? Is it going to be sort of as a right winger? Um, is it going to be in central midfield as, you know, as Filippo sort of highlighted? Um, but I mean, he's a serial winner. And I think that a lot of people have come out recently and spoken of what he adds to the dressing room. And besides what you might think of him, because he has a very sort of goofy persona with his online presence, etc. But besides that, a lot of people say that he's actually a great person to have in the changing room. And if this is... 
you know, well, it is a very young Barcelona side that does need some guidance. And Xavi has a really big project on his hands. So maybe it's just an ally, um, how he'll be viewed by the other teammates, if they're going to think that he's sort of, you know, always watching on them and telling daddy Xavi what's going on. And when they aren't really showing up to training on time or whatever, I don't know. But I think that it's mostly just there for leadership and whatever they get out of him on the pitch will sort of be bonus at that point. Yeah, definitely an interesting one. Um, boys, that's pretty much it for, for club football for us on this show. Um, I want to wanna jump to all the World Cup qualifiers. And um, Filippo, I'm going to go to you next because Comnibol, um pretty much wrapped up. We kind of hinted at, at the top of the show, Brazil are there. And, um, you know, they're facing Argentina who, with a win can be also there. So... What is what is your big lookout for this game? I mean, it's always a big one. Brazil against Argentina, that, that's a classical, right? I mean, it is the same way as uh, Germany against Netherlands or Portugal, Spain, or, um, you know, many, many other games. But with Brazil already there, um, how important is that game for them? And how important is this game for, for Argentina? Well, it's definitely more important for Argentina, Right. Uh, Brazil is going to take it as a derby and they have to win it. But essentially, the importance of it is to Argentina, the guarantee and qualify. But at the end of the day, Brazil and Argentina are qualified to the World Cup. Right. Argentina, math Brazil, mathematically, Argentina, theoretically, the third team that might qualify is Ecuador. If you look in the table right now, Ecuador is in third. They have a young emerging team in South America. And it's a team to definitely keep an eye out for. The interesting thing I want to point out here is the sixth placed Uruguay right now. Right. If you check the table right now, fourth, we got Chile, fifth, we got Colombia, sixth, we have Uruguay. We could have Uruguay missing the World Cup. And I don't know if you guys have been following through with that. It's an interesting one, right? An aging team, considering they're, even their old, their coach is old, right? Oscar Tabares at this point. But going back to your question, Manuel, uh, I think the importance of this game, it's just because it's a derby. Because for Brazil and Argentina, in terms of the standings, it won't matter at all. They're both in Qatar 2022. I find it interesting what you say about Uruguay. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm the oldest person on the show. So I remember a time when Uruguay didn't qualify for World Cups. And I, I think a lot of people kind of forget that maybe, that it is not a given for them to go regularly to World Cups. It's a very small country, 5 million people, right? It's essentially the size of Scotland. Um, yeah, some people will point out to Switzerland and kind of talk about Switzerland uh, make no mistake about that and they size and how often they go to tournaments because they go pro pretty much every tournament as well right but filippo uruguay is a small country and they get a golden generation every let's say every 10 15 years right and they rely on that golden generation to basically see them through but i think it is pretty much also given that because of the size of the country that they are a drought is always possible Yeah, they're, they're a very, very small country. At one point, Uruguay, many, 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 I think century or decades ago, whatever, Uruguay was part of Brazil, right? It was pretty much a state. They're a small country, and they do get a very talented generation from here and there. And they do have two World Cups that they won many, many decades ago. And then in the 2000s, they missed the 2002 World Cup. But ever since 2006, I believe, or South Africa, and I don't remember, they had a very strong generation, right, with Diego Forlan, and later on now Luis Suarez. But it aged and it seems like they're going to go through a rough decade now because I can't think of many talented players, at least not in as a group, right? You have some good defenders like Jimenez. Um, you got also Valverde emerging on Real Madrid, but then you also see them starting. 
I believe it's Brian Rodriguez, right? I think he starts for them and he's playing in MLS and no offense to MLS, but Uruguay, when they have good generations, they have players playing for teams in the top five leagues and some of them, Atletico Madrid, some top teams. So when they're starting an MLS player, no offense to MLS once again, because people will hate me for this. There's something going on there. That's all I want to talk about. So yes, they're not going through the best phases right now. They're transitioning. Yeah, I, I definitely want to defend MLS here because I think it is an, an emerging league and um, we want to talk about our next country, Ecuador, really briefly because they do seem, you know, that is a country that is heavily targeted by MLS scouting at the moment. Uh, Diego Palacios features for them, for example, right? Um, you know, of course, know uh, Jackson Martin- Mendes, um, who's playing for Orlando and they seem like a country that is going to qualify for the World Cup. What do you see with Ecuador, Filippo? Yeah, they're very young, emerging. Uh, yeah, Seba Mendes plays for Orlando City, very good box-to-box midfielder. They, they're very young, emerging, good coach right now. They had some problems with Jordi Cruyff, and then they switched to Gustavo Alfaro, which is a former Boca Juniors coach, and he's been doing great work there. A lot of young talent, right? And Ecuador at home is a tough team to play as well. They have the altitude, all of that, and it's been playing a big role. They probably will qualify. They're four points ahead of the fourth seed. And I think they'll hold on to it because they'll get results done at home. And it's an exciting team to watch out in this World Cup. Uh, in South America, people often look at Brazil, Argentina, and forget the other nations. And we often forget that most South American nations that make the World Cups, they do make it past the group stage for most part. And I think Ecuador will be one of those teams that will qualify. And if they do, they will get past their group, regardless of who's in their group. Yeah, Piero Hincabi is another one who plays for Bayer Leverkusen, who, you know, I, I kept a close eye on before he was signed. And then, of course, Leverkusen got that deal done, beat out a lot of other teams in Germany, but also elsewhere to, to sign him, um, one of the up-and-coming defenders out of South America. Definitely, Ecuador is one to watch, and um, I think it's exciting that they are at the, at the World Cup and maybe one of the more up-and-coming countries. It's always a question I had of every World Cup, right? Who's the country to watch? Um, I think there's going to be another country that we're going to talk about a bit more later in the show that is also going to be uh, surprising a lot of people if they make it there. Um, but Ecuador is certainly one um, that I think is very interesting. Um, we now have to talk about two countries that might not make it to the World Cup. And I do, I am dying to talk about Italy because I just watched that game. But I feel like before we do that and I get to get to talk about Northern Ireland, completely shutting them out. We have to talk about Portugal, Adrian. I'm sorry to put you on the spot. It's not easy, um, but here we are. What did you make about this World Cup qualification campaign for Portugal? Well, first off, a shout out to the other island for uh, giving Portugal such a tough time. Uh, in both matches, really, because of course there was the nil-nil draw away to Port- or away to Ireland, I should say, um, and then there was the match prior to that played in Portugal, where you know you had Cristiano Ronaldo slapping O'Shea in the face before he took a penalty. If there was VAR, he would have been sent off. And then later in the match, he missed that penalty, by the way. But later in the match, Ronaldo ties it up, and then he ends up getting the game-winning goal. So reasons for Ireland to feel hard done by there. So shout out to Ireland. They've made some changes and are looking good. But overall, Portugal, under Fernando Santos, I mean, I've been keeping the same energy about him for a long time now. And this branches back to prior to Euro 2020. This is a guy who, I don't know if he's necessarily a defensive coach. I don't know what his identity really is anymore, but it just seems to be overly cautious in a way. Um, And he has a wealth of attacking talent 
and he's not utilizing them in the right sorts of ways. There's too many times that we have a double pivot when we don't need to play in that sort of way. So this is another campaign that just sort of hammered home how he isn't the right man to be at the helm of Portugal in this moment. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily an over-reliance on Cristiano Ronaldo. That's something that gets, that gets thrown around a lot. I think that that's sort of beyond the point at, at this point now. Um, I think that you can have a successful team or a team that plays cohesive attacking football with Cristiano Ronaldo in it. Um, and to say that it's because of him is a bit of a, a bit of a cop-out answer, I think, from some people. But Fernando Santos, I think it, his time to go was after the World Cup of 2018. Um, but Portugal finishing second, giving up that goal against Serbia in the final minutes there when they went to into their defensive shell once again after taking an early lead and they ultimately paid for it. So what do you think is next then for this Portugal side? Because you, you look at, you, of course, and we're going to go into this into greater detail um, about this next stage of World Cup qualifying in UEFA. Um, I needed to get out the Rubik's Cube earlier to figure it all out, but... Um, What do we? What's the next step here? What is going to happen with Fernando Santos? Is he is he given this these qualifiers, these playoffs, or is this maybe a, a time when you say, okay, look, um, we need a new face to guide this team successfully to Qatar? I personally think that they need a new a new face to guide them to Qatar, but it's not going to happen. I think that he has too much credit built up from Euro 2016, which you know, Manu, I've been going through his results at major tournaments. And he's been in charge of Euro 2016, the World Cup of 2018, and Euro 2020. And within regulation, within 90 minutes, he has won just three matches from 15 games. That is quite the indictment. Famously finishing third place twice in the Euro competition. So even if he is to get through these playoffs, I'm not confident that Portugal will do anything besides a, a limp performance in the World Cup. And when you look at all the teams that are sort of ahead of him uh, in this playoff here. There's the likes of Italy, etc., which we'll get into lately, later. Sorry, I just don't feel confident seeing how they played against Serbia and, and Ireland recently. I find this really interesting because, of course, Germany went to something very similar, right? And the two of us talked about it on your show, Adrian, about Joachim Löw. And um, there comes a point where it's not about the talent on the field, but rather about the decisions made from the bench. And it it's not that the coach doesn't have the quality because Fernando Santos has won a title with Portugal, just like Joachim Löw has won a title with, with Germany, right? But you get the sense that sometimes these coaches hang on too long to their position and they miss the right opportunity to leave. And you see this with this Germany side, a new head coach comes in and Hansi Flick. It's the same group of players, but that team is transformed. It's playing a completely different style of football. It's scoring like there was there was no yesterday. And all of a sudden, Germany is a candidate for the World Cup again. And you see this. You see, I, I find it very similar to Portugal, right? Is this just a, one of those things where sometimes we, we're not cruel enough in the sport to get rid of a head coach at the right time? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly what's going on. And I think that the players feel it as well, where they don't necessarily want to be the ones to speak out against the coach because he had that previous achievement with them. But, 
you know, you look at some of the things like Bernardo Silva, for example, saying that there wasn't even a 10 minute stretch. He was saying this on Portuguese TV, that there wasn't even a 10 minute stretch where Portugal were superior to Serbia in that game when they're playing at home, when they scored in the second minute and they could have run on to continue to do well, to continue to try and get some goals. But instead, we have things like Fernando Santos playing a back three in the last 20 minutes or something like that. Portugal's never played with a back three. This is a guy who's just desperate to hang on to what he had at that moment. And he's ultimately paid for it. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what's going to happen in in the playoffs. And uh, Josh, I I assume you also watched the Italy game, and it's it was an interesting one. The, the seeing that entire stretch of game, and um, I, I had the Switzerland game on in the background. Switzerland, of course, beat Bulgaria four uh, nil, and at two nil. Italy had to score more than one to go automatically through. What did you make of this whole Italy fiasco, what it is now? Well, I'm not going to lie. I uh, I streamed the game. Uh, so I had some commentators that were definitely from North Ireland and they were firing me up the entire match. Um, it was it, it was poor from Italy, knowing the fact that they had one of the, the worst hit moments of their uh, footballing history in recent time when they didn't qualify for the 2018 World Cup and you'd feel like that would be the um, on the mind of some of these players because a lot of them like including Insigne was a big part of part of that and then on top of that they uh they've obviously bounced back they they're the European champions they've had an incredible record of I believe 37 games in a row with uh without losing and and you kind of just assume they were going to get it through and it kind of always takes it back to that Jorginho miss penalty and I don't know if that came in the minds of the heads of of these players being like, uh oh, like we just left the door wide open for, for an an awful opportunity to, to a, a, occur, and that is exactly what happened. And it was it was a poor performance. I honestly thought uh, North Ireland gave a, a pretty impressive performance. Um, they were defending very well, very well organized. They got better as the game uh, progressed, and Italy just didn't really look to be finding one. And then when Switzerland obviously went up by a few, it just it, they looked dead and buried and they didn't create anything and full credit to Northern Ireland who basically has gave them a very hard opportunity now to go through the playoffs which is where they failed last time it's it's a tough place to play Northern Ireland um seen it with Germany they've played there a few times and even though they did get the results it was always difficult uh, I think both the, both Ireland and Northern Ireland that entire island is a difficult place to go to and that stadium was an amazing atmosphere Josh I agree with you it was great and um, they could have won it as well right I mean there was a moment in time when uh, I think it was Dallas who came forward and uh, the ball got cleared off the line and not that it would have made too much of a difference at this stage, but I, I wonder, and I wonder if you thought that too, Josh, there was a time when I thought, okay, when, when is Robert Roberto Mancini making the changes to go for goals? Because a 0-0 draw, I think it was around the 60th, 65th minute, it became pretty clear that um, a draw wasn't going to do it for them. Yeah, Um yeah, I, w- I was surprised a little bit by by the substitutions, but you're you're spot on with the uh, the uh, the Dallas chance there. I mean, again, listening to the commentary, uh, it, w- it was quite funny, and I almost wanted North North Island to win. North, I, I honestly did, only because I, I was just it was so exciting seeing the atmosphere there. This game really didn't mean anything. They were playing for pride, and they had the opportunity to win to win the game. And unfortunately for that, uh, uh, for them, that didn't quite happen. And but they were still very satisfied with the with the nil nil, but. You'd almost expect Mancini to do something a little bit earlier. I thought 
uh, playing with the false nine today with Leonardo Insigne as the false nine. I thought because Immobile wasn't available, Bellotti was going to probably come on at at halftime. They weren't creating a lot. Uh, they weren't, for example, in the cor- corner kicks in the first half, they were very rarely putting balls in the box. They just assumed because they're shorter than some of the, some of the North Island players that they were just weren't going to, to whip balls in the box. So I, I honestly thought that uh, something strategic to, would be do is get a number nine, especially when you need goals. And I don't know, I just didn't really understand some of the substitutions that were made. And ultimately they ended up nil, nil. Obviously it was uh, Stuart Dallas and Connor Washington, two cities in the U S uh, combining there to not score. Um, just want to correct that. The NHL season is underway in DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NHL has an unbelievable offer to celebrate the greatest sport on ice. New customers can bet just $1 on any NHL game and win $100 in free bets if either team scores a goal. Doesn't matter if it's a one-time clapper or a deft deflection. However they light the lamp, you win. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TBPN. Throw down $1 on any NHL game and win 100 in free bets if either team scores a goal. This week, one puck in the net nets you a big win with promo code TBPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NHL. Must be 21 or older. New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Adrian, so Italy are in this as well. Portugal in this in this um, second round of qualifying. And Italy and Portugal are seeded, which is sort of good news. In some ways, right? Because you know it means that they're seeded for the semifinal. But Portugal and Italy can still face each other. And um, if you are neutral, which I am, I can't wait. I think it would be great. But if you are Portuguese or Italian, that's not a great prospect, is it? No, of course not. Especially, I don't think that Portugal's record against Italy is that great. Now, like you said, neutrals are going to be sort of frothing at the mouth for that kind of matchup, especially if it happens to be in one of those finals of the of the three paths. Um, but, you know, even looking at some of the other teams, you know, North Macedonia has done well. They've sort of continued on their trajectory after Euro 2020. Poland, not an easy team. Russia, Scotland doing well. Sweden is in there as well. And there's still things to be sorted out, such as Netherlands, Turkey, Norway. We don't know who's going to end up there. So like I said, with the way that Portugal played during this international break and the previous one, to be honest with you, if they get drawn, I mean, up against any of these teams, I'm not going to be feeling very confident going into it just based off of how they've sort of been so laborious lately. I feel we need to kind of explain what's going to happen next. And Josh and Adrian and Filippo, we've all kind of looked at this stage and um, tried to figure it out. So we still have a few games tomorrow. Um, so we still get the runner-up of Group D and the runner-up of Group G in there. We have from in Pot 2, we have Austria and North Macedonia. Um, we got there, we are there. Um, UEFA Nations League. Yes, that's still around, um, unfortunately. And... Um, Italy, Portugal, Russia, Scotland seeded. Um, I assume that's because of the FIFA ranking. So yeah, all these teams are going to be seeded into three paths. 
uh, three brackets. Um, these three brackets are going to have semifinals uh, that those are going to be played between the 24th and 5th, 25th of March. It's a single elimination. Um, and then it's a single elimination final. So no return match. And I know return matches, Josh, can be a good thing for some of these bigger countries, right? Can be a really great thing for some of these smallers because we have seen North Macedonia, for example, beat Germany um, in the first leg of the, of the group stage. It was the only game that Germany lost in the group stage. So anything can happen in a single leg. Italy could go out against someone big. Portugal could go out against someone against someone small, right? I mean, it's all possible at this stage because of its single single leg elimination. Yeah, especially looking, I mean, it kind of reminds me of uh, like just knowing that so much is on the line when the Champions League went down with the, with the COVID to the, the single leg knockout. It is massively important and massively important for the underdogs because you could argue, I mean, it's like, well, Sweden took on Italy two matches, but I mean, they defended for, for 90 matches, both, both of them, but they still found a way to through, but that's very rarely the course. It, it gives bigger countries an opportunity to have a slip up and I mean, nine times out of 10, you see a bigger country like Italy, say they even draw or lose the, f- the first match, they have a big opportunity at home to, to come back and make a difference. And now that it's just, it's one single match, you don't know what happened. You could take a red card in the, the first minute of the game and, and you're now backs against the wall for the, the majority of the match. Anything can happen. It's going to make it so exciting. But if I'm a fan of, of Italy or Portugal, so sorry, sorry, Adrian, um, I would be sweating because uh, you don't know what's going to happen. And, and it's a huge, huge deal. And I'm excited to see how it plays out. Yeah, I, I'm as well. Um, Filippo, I want to bring you in here. That single single leg elimination is probably the best thing that UEFA could have done for this stage uh, for all the neutrals watching. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I personally don't follow UEFA World Cup qualifying very much. I watch more Common Ball and CONCACAF, but I'll be watching that closely. I love myself a little bit of a knockout stage, one match, essentially how the World Cup is right in the knockout stages and MLS playoffs. So I'll be watching it closely. I'll be just, it, for us that are neutrals here, it's just fun. Yeah, absolutely. So guys, let's move on um, to CONCACAF. And uh, Philippe, I'm going to stay straight with you because the U.S. beat Mexico once again. Dos a zero. Um, yeah, it's, is it becoming old? If you, But it's probably just becoming old for Mexicans at this stage because they... They keep on losing all these games. Um, if I feel personally, there's been so much criticism on Greg Behalter. A lot of it, rightly so. I think this does not absolve him from the things he has done wrong. But he does seem to beat Mexico every single time. So is that is that because of him, or what do you make of this? Well, if I say he doesn't play a role, then I'm being unfair, right? He is the coach, and he selects the players. He coaches the team. And and last game, personally, so we beat Mexico twice during the summer, but we got outplayed twice. The big thing about this last game that was special was we actually outplayed Mexico. For in Honestly, in my lifetime, I never really saw us defeat Mexico that way, controlling possession, creating more. Usually we have to like grind it out counter you know the Landon Donovan counter attack and finish off the game but it was different it was it showed that the United States was more technical it was a better team it seemed also more well coached with a very good press and it worked so yeah we do give credit to Greg and no no Manuel it's not going to get old beating L3 it always feels good to beat L3 and 
we were losing to them a lot before we started this three-game winning streak. So it's just getting started. I have to ask you, though, it seems almost like it's a pre-given now that you've beaten Mexico 2-0. <laughs> I mean, it's just remarkable that, that that's the scoreline mm -hmm. every single time. You've beaten Mexico 2-0, 2-0. Now you're going to Jamaica. A Jamaica side that is um, going to have a lot more talent available to them than they had in previous stages of, of the of World Cup qualifying. And I think that's actually quite important to point out, right? The fact that um, Jamaica was pretty hard done by by some of the COVID protocols. So is it now a given that after you've beaten Mexico, you're going to fall to Jamaica? <laughs> you know, with um, with Greg in charge, you never know, right? If he plays, if he plays our best players like he did against Mexico, and he doesn't play his favorites, which I could name a few of them if you'd like, but I'm pretty sure everyone's aware who they are. I think we should be able to beat Jamaica. Now, Jamaica's a tricky team because they have the worst coach in Concacaf, maybe one of the worst soccer coaches in the world. But the team does have some interesting names, which especially in CONCACAF, we'll talk about Mikel Antonio, has six goals in the Premier League this season, three assists, been doing amazing. Last game for Jamaica, he came off the bench for whatever reason and scored a goal two minutes in. Leon Bailey is there, a player that was successful in Bundesliga and I was in the Premier League. Ethan Pinock from Brentford. There's talent in the team, but the coach is terrible. So it's not a given that we'll lose. It depends a lot on what Greg will do. But expect inconsistencies from this U.S. team under Greg Berhalter. So uh, am I going to bet on us losing? No, but can that happen? I wouldn't be surprised. I just know that uh, playing in Jamaica, the pitch, the pitch is going to be terrible. And uh, that's a perfect transition, guys, because that will get us to the pitch in uh, Edmonton. And um, Josh and Adrian... It's great that the city of Edmonton gets to host a game. I, I'm absolutely thrilled for them. And they came out, 48,800. It's the biggest crowd for a sporting event in this country since the start of the pandemic. And you have to applaud that for that. Absolutely. The fact that Edmonton came out and support their homeboy, Alfonso Davies. He's never played a professional game there, right? Um, because he's, he went to the Whitecaps at age 14. Um, so this is his first ever professional game in Edmonton. And uh, for them to come out and support him, it's just absolutely fantastic. But it's also the week that FIFA visited all these different cities. And Josh, the pitch, like, what the heck, man? <laughs> you cannot present a pitch like that to the world. That's absolutely atrocious. Yeah, it, it was uh, It was the big talking point. I mean... Not only like the pitch itself, but I mean, watch like watching the the match. I mean, it looked like a football field. It, it did. The lines were still kind of kind of there. The the ball, in in my opinion, multiple times. I mean, he, wherever it hit the ground, you didn't know which way it was going to go. It, it looked rough. Uh, I thought. I mean, the big debate was. I mean, playing in these type of uh, cold atmospheres could potentially help Canada, but we're not that team anymore. I think we're a much more talented team. None of these players play in snow or are used to playing in snow. Um, UK Ubo definitely has Davies not been one of them. <laughs> in, in, you could argue Davies sometimes in Munich, but people keep forgetting that the Allianz Arena at field level is heated. Right? He, yeah. That, the snow doesn't stick. Snow doesn't stick. No, it doesn't. Yeah. But I mean, even even to the, these weathers, but everyone just assumes that Canadians are, are, are built with a winter coat attached to their bodies and, and it's placed to their advantage. But I just think with the more skilled that we've become over the years, that this hurt the Canadian side 
in their performance. They thought it would, I mean, we got away. We got, I think we get, not that we got lucky to get the three points because we were definitely the better team, but I mean, it could have been a far easier game in my opinion, if, if we were able to play in a field that, that benefited our, our squad. And it was just, it was, it was a head scratcher to say, say the least. Uh, we have to play Mexico in it again. The weather is supposed to be atrocious. Who knows what happens there, but at this time of the year, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would ever want to see another another game being played in Edmonton at this time. I think a lot has got to be done to make sure that it's completely up to it. But I saw a couple of reports today that said that they were down at field level and said that the field's looking quite good. So I don't know if that was a little bit of damage control or something there, but it, it, and it was a little off-putting. Yeah, you could see the seams between the lines. Um, maybe good enough for throwball, but I don't think it was a soccer pitch. It's, it's too bad. I mean, again... Um, we're expecting over 50,000 for the game against Mexico. If Mexico make it there, there's, they're delayed. They're sitting somewhere in the airport because they train in Neapolis um, following the game against the United States. And Adrian, the prime minister, was there today. Uh, I, I looked this up, or someone was sent it to me, I have to admit it. In 1987 was the last time the prime minister took a photo with a Canadian national team. It was a U-20 side that was playing in England at the time. Um, the prime minister was there, Justin Trudeau. Now, this is, we're not political. Like or hate, hate or like Justin Trudeau, either way, it is significant that the prime minister of our country is speaking to the team before a World Cup qualifier. I think our media has done, and we, we're all on this to show, um, are pretty critical of how Canadian media at times, I mean, Filippo doesn't care, but the rest of us is pretty critical about how Canadian media treats the sport in this country. But they have done a fantastic job with this game. And with everything that's going on in Edmonton and with this team, how big of a game is this one? I mean, you know, Justin Trudeau. Previously, we heard that Drake wanted to take pictures with the team. I think he did take some pictures with Oh, Alfonso man, Davies. that's bad news, though. Yeah, He's that is cursed, bad news. Man. <laughs> now, now, I know. So you have that coupled with this uneven pitch. It's just you're, you're begging to get some knee injuries out there. So hopefully nothing will come in that regard. But no, this this matchup against Mexico is going to be absolutely massive. It's going to be absolutely massive. I just wish, you know, to echo what you guys were saying, that they were playing on a smoother pitch. Even, you know, I saw this sort of the reaction because I did tweet about the pitch saying, you know, I hope that Canada doesn't play or I wish that Canada wasn't playing on that pitch again. And a lot of people were saying, well, hey, that's turf pitch. But you look at BC Place and it's far smoother, far, far smoother. But anyways, that aside, this game against Mexico is going to be massive. Um, but you know, it's so strange coming into this. I still can't get over the fact coming into this confident with Canada up against Mexico, because I just, I just love how dynamic this team is under Herdman, you know, fluid formations. He can go from a three at the back to a four, four, two. He'll, he'll make changes when he needs to like that change that he made to put Fonzie in a wide position when he wasn't necessarily able to dribble or anything and have sort of the freedom in the front with Jonathan David, Sometimes I feel like <laughs> this team, they show their age a little bit. They get involved in the handbags with their opponents a little too often sometimes. But I mean, that's CONCACAF, right? You, you wouldn't have it under any other way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm i really excited for this one and I expect more good things from Canada. Now, the, the question is, the final question on this one, though, when we look at this pitch and there is reports and the city of Vancouver is going to absolutely hate John Hurtman if this is true, because it is him. Um, he's apparently pushing to having this game because he doesn't want to fly uh, halfway across the country. It doesn't for the European based players. It doesn't really make a difference whether you fly nine hours to from uh, anywhere in Europe to Vancouver or eight to ten hours from anywhere in Europe to Toronto. It's the same distance. 
but he apparently doesn't want to fly all the way into Vancouver. Uh, BC Place is scheduled to put a new pitch down for the game against the United States. Um, but to can John Herbman is now pushing to maybe have that game played on January 30th in Toronto. Adrian and Josh, you guys live out east. I, I cannot judge this. It just rains a lot here and BC Place has a roof. But could you even play that game at BMO Field or would you have to move it to um, Rogers, you know, to maybe play it under the dome? Like, Josh, what do you think? I mean, Toronto in January is cold. Yeah, yeah. I mean, where I'm currently today, uh, it's snowing where I'm from. So uh, it snows and it, it sometimes doesn't even snow in November. But I mean, January, February is when you get hit hard. I would, I was shocked when I read that. I, I was shocked because... I mean, it just makes sense if you're gonna do a World Cup qualifying game. It doesn't matter about convenience. Put it in the in the location that's gonna make the most sense for the players, so they're not freezing their butts off. Uh, it's gonna be cold. It's gonna be freezing cold. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I would be very surprised if he did end up doing that. BC in Canada, we're, we're lucky that at least the match is very playable at BC Place. It miss. I would be baffled if they moved it to Toronto, but you, you will be cold and you will need to dress uh, in snow pants with gloves, hat, and maybe a, a, a Timmy's hot chocolate. What do you think about all this, Adrian? Game in Toronto in January on January 30th, which is, by the way, I don't think it's an official FIFA window. So maybe, Filippo, you want to add something on that in the end as well. It, it honestly living in Montreal I feel like Montreal is a little bit colder than Toronto it would be impossible here there's a reason why the impact sorry club to foot Montreal plays their first month of fixtures or something like that during a regular season at least when they're not playing in Miami there's a reason why they play their first few fixtures at the Olympic Stadium which again is turf and I will say much smoother than it was at Commonwealth Stadium in Edmonton. But no, I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I, I don't see how that could ever happen in, in Toronto, especially outdoor at BMO Field. I think it would be impossible, near impossible at least. Yeah, Filippo, a prospect of the United States having to play in the equivalent of Siberia uh, on January 30th against Canada. We'll deal with it. We got you guys. Um, it's, regardless of the weather, I think Canada has proven to the United States that it has to, they have to be taken seriously, right? You guys went to the United States and you didn't hold the draw against the United States in the United States. We held the draw, right? So I think regardless, <laughs> it's going to be a tough game for us, right? But the thing is, are the Canadian players more used to this weather than the American players at this point? Because the Canadian players are not playing in Canada, not all of them anymore. So I don't know if the U.S. or Canada, if any of them are going to get affected by this. It's just hopefully the field is good, right? We just don't want to deal with that. Yeah, that's maybe my final point on this. This whole idea of taking advantage of of, of the bad weather um, doesn't work if all your players don't play in bad weather. You know, I mean, we made the point about Fonzie Davis earlier. He's playing his first ever professional game in Edmonton last week. You know, he spent his entire professional career playing in Vancouver and in Munich. You know, like he might be an Edmonton boy, but he's been away since he's 14. And most of the squad has been playing in warmer weather, right? So it is an interesting question, I think, whether this is actually giving Canada an advantage, especially since most of the time, I mean, when they play Costa Rica, when they play Panama, when they play Jamaica, when they play any of those countries, they had a better team now in, in, this, in this region, right? The only two times this really could apply is against the United States and against Mexico. And I think against the United States at home, you have to play for a win now, as they did the last time they played in Toronto. So 
it's an interesting one. I think um, we'll see how this game goes on Tuesday. Uh, we'll see how all the other matches pan out. I think it's something very exciting football going to happen in this region. And yeah, I think we're going to be back to the end of the week to, to recap it all and then also go back into some club football. So boys, that's it for us from us this week. We'll be back shortly. Until then, bye-bye. <laughs>